Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. I'm recording my part of Julia Zamiro asks, who cares on the lands of the Gundungara and Darawal people? Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the podcast. A podcast about politics for people who hate politics. This is Julia Zemiro Asks Who Cares. Hello, Julia here, and thank you again for joining me on the Irrational Fear podcast feed. To listen to Who Cares, this month, Kerry O'Brien and Zara Seidler, two people who have been and are working in uh, the media in Australia. Zara Seidler, in her 20s with Sam Kozlowski, set up The Daily Oz, News for Millennials. We'll be speaking to her after we speak with Kerry O'Brien. Of course, Kerry is a prominent Australian journalist and author whose long career includes 28 years as a National Current Affairs television presenter and interviewer. From This Day Tonight, Four Corners, Late Line, The 7.30 Report, where he was editor and presenter for 15 years. He's written two books, one on former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, but more recently, a memoir on the social and political upheavals he's witnessed in half a century of journalism. And that's what I wanted to talk to him about today because one of the biggest uh, upheavals, I think, is this independent grassroots movement. And I wanted to ask him what he thought about that and where he thought it might go. Just in terms of the phenomenon, and, and it is one, I think it's been in the pipeline for quite a while. It's been coming to us slowly. And I think it's probably been hastening the more people have become disillusioned and lost respect and grown angrier and more frustrated with the political process. I don't think the state of politics in this country has been at a lower ebb in my working life as a journalist than it is now. And there are all kinds of reasons for that. But in terms of how the media deals with it, I would say the media in its coverage of politics 
really reflects the state of our society too, in the sense that we are digitally disrupted, generally, in all of our individual lives, and the media is disrupted as it hasn't been for a very, very long time, and disrupted not necessarily in a good way. I mean, what ultimately emerges, in a sense, is in the lap of the gods. It's not all, all that easy to predict. I hope I never lose faith in the belief that the public will always be hungry for information and that the same reasons that saw journalism gradually proliferate through the developed world as the printing presses arrived and and as communications improved and so on. So I, I just don't see how we will ever lose that hunger. But what I also hope is that the quality of and and accuracy and responsibility of coverage doesn't continue to dissipate as it has because of the disruption, because of the extent to which the internet has crowded and got in the way of the capacity of the mainstream credible media to function as it is supposed to. But I don't think we're ever going to be able to wind back the 24 hours news cycle. Well, I, I just think that there will be an evolution of some kind, Julia. I mean, I, I think what we've seen in the last, say, 15 years, slowly and then gathering pace, and now now it's kind of on us, uh, is the meeting in the middle of the various news operations and media operations. So print and television have met in the middle. We have converged. We've been talking about convergence for a long time. We now have convergence. It's still evolving. And the final form of that convergence is still there to be kind of played with and speculated upon. But print and television and radio have all met in the middle. You can see the ways that print is adapting to that. And I think it still has quite a ways to go. Whereas in one way, it's been a bit easier for, for television and radio to adapt to its online presence, particularly the ABC, because um, we're, we're just changing the written word somewhat. We're changing... Uh, if we're writing for online as opposed for, to for television, we're writing just for the oral word and the written word. Whereas for newspaper journos who've known only print writing for print in their past, they've got to learn the process of writing for pictures and uh, and writing in a different way. So they'll catch up. They are catching up. You can see it. They'll they're developing their their interviewing skills. I mean, I can remember when I was a print journo. You'd go with your little tape recorder and you'd sit down and you'd have a chat and you'd cover all the ground and you'd walk away with about an hour of stuff, about 10 minutes of which was worth using. Uh, for television, you're very conscious of the clock ticking and you are, you are forced to apply a real discipline and a serious thought process to the questions you really want to explore uh, and, and you've got to have a sense in your head of how long you've got to do it in. Uh, so that's an adaptation for print. But you see, outside of those things, those things on their own would not present a difficulty. The real difficulty lies in the fact that the traditional model of journalism has gone out the window. Um, newsrooms have been seriously disrupted. The commercial operation has been seriously disrupted. Newsrooms are now either the same size, but the journos are asked to do a lot more. So the, the size of the newsrooms and the resources of the newsrooms haven't grown to match the demands that are now on the journalists. And secondly, where there have been attempts to cut back on the costs of operating newsrooms, the first to go, uh, it, it always pretty much starts with, with the human resource, which is the costly resource. Uh, 
And the most costly resource in a newsroom tends to be the more experienced, older journalist who's spent a lifetime accumulating knowledge and history. They've got the scars. They know where the bodies are buried, but they're more expensive. So if, if you're an accountant sitting down to work out where you're going to make your cuts, newsrooms have bled age and experience. And so you've now got a situation where newsrooms around Australia are on average probably 10 years at least younger than they might have been 10 or 15 years ago. So an awful lot of very smart young journalists, and they are smart, are growing up without mentors. They are developing as journalists without mentors. And if they don't have a sense of the history that's passed, then that comes at a great cost to the quality of their journalism because, because when I watch politics being reported now, I do get frustrated I'm not the old white guy throwing his slipper at the screen because it's not like it was in my day. I don't want to ever make that mistake. But I do see not just opportunities going begging. I see important questions, important checks and balances in the journos process, which is supposed to be fundamental to good journalism. I see those things going begging. I see them not being done. And that really worries me. I've only been to Parliament House a few times, a uh, couple of times to, you know, beg for money for the ABC and SBS. Um, uh, well, you're preaching the converted anyway in the group that you're speaking to. I'm always amazed at how much uh, access journalists actually have in the House. And I sometimes think of the analogy of private schools and selective schools. Go with me. <laughs> I went to a selective school and um, while we weren't didn't have the poshness or the money necessarily surrounding us, if you went to a pub where there were private school kids, you'd be accepted. You'd be welcomed. You could share all the information. You knew what was happening behind the veil. You could see what was happening in those private schools, how they all behaved. And then you left with that information and it was your little secret to keep because we're not one of them but we're allowed in there but we'll keep the secrets. And I sometimes feel like with journalists, they cannot really be in that house. They must know that stuff goes on that they don't report. And I'm not talking just now, I'm talking 20, 30 years ago. And I I wonder what the responsibility is there. And it can't just be about protecting a source or whatever. There's a kind of um, like an in-joke or an in-world that just annoys me when I hear it. And I think, it's not a joke. It's not something to kind of go, oh, you're all pals and you know each other and that's how he acts and that's how she acts. That too, I think, has, has come into journalism and that's not the young ones necessarily. I, yes, but I, I don't think it's uh, quite the club that you paint it to be and I don't think it ever has been quite that club. But the aspects of it are true, absolutely. But, um, I mean, I can remember the wonderful Mungo McCallum, the late Mungo, in the days of Nation Review, and Mungo was doing it uh, on the Australian of all papers before he went to Nation Review. Um, Rupert, by all accounts, wasn't all that thrilled with the way he wrote, but nonetheless, he went to Canberra and and reflected. This is like back in the sixties, and reflect when he reflected on it, he could have sounded somewhat like you because because he was saying even though he had gone through university, uh, he had been a journalist, he was very well read. Uh, that getting and he was writing politics from Sydney to some degree, but when he actually got there, uh, he was shocked at how little he knew, and so he made it his business to take his readers behind the scenes and give them a sense of how life uh, really fun- how the political process functioned, how the processes of government functioned, including the public service, how the parliament functioned. He made it his business in part to educate and he saw that as a part of his responsibility. 
You also got a a lot of laughs reading it and were sometimes scandalised as you read it. And other journalists uh, uh, from time to time have reflected some aspects of that. But uh, it's less, I suspect, because it's a club, but that journalists can sometimes make the mistake of assuming that that the kind of nuts and bolts of something is too mundane, it's not interesting enough to make it interesting for the public, which to me means that they're not doing their jobs and they don't really understand why they're there. Or they take for granted that everyone knows. The other aspect that you touch on really is is the kind of behind-the-scenes chit-chat. You know, you lift the phone to a politician and you have an off-the-record chat. But that is that has always been a part of journalism everywhere. And without that part of the process, journalism would be only ever bringing you a fifth of the story. It allows you to be more nuanced in your reporting without necessarily reporting what the person has told you specifically. One private conversation might lead to another, which leads to a story, which is an important story to get out. Uh, look, I'm sure that some journalists have had favourite sources over the years that they have that they have nurtured and they don't want to burn their sources, so maybe they treat them a little gently. And I know that a journalist here or there who's, who has, who I've thought has done that, and I don't like it when I see it. But it's, it is a more complex operation than, than, than it might appear sometimes from the outside looking in. I don't think it's quite the club you talk about. Uh, I'm sure journalists would like to be more in the know than they are. When you watch the uh, Westminster system that that we use, that that sort of yelling across, do you ever do you ever get frustrated? I, there's just got to be a better way, you know. When you look at cultures around the world, you look in schools, you know, the whole idea of when you're trying to want to get to the bottom of something, you kind of you try and find ways to agree on it rather than disagree. It's this constant arguing, I feel like part of the independence movement is that. Uh, there might be five or six people on that crossbench being able to go, well, you know what, clearly you guys don't know how to have a conversation, so let's cut to it. But mm. It's just not that hard. You know, I get, as a trained actor, I get employed by companies to go in and help them figure out how to talk to each other and how to communicate better. So, you know, we're all happy to offer our services, us <laughs> artists, because we've all lost our jobs. So please, by all means, bring us in. But um, but yeah, I wonder about uh, I wonder about that system. Will that change as well one day? Will we? I mean, whether we become a republic or not, that idea it can't be the best way to spend time because it's not it's not working. It's just not working. Yeah. yeah. Look, speaking as a journalist, but also as an individual, I, I do love some good theatre. I'd love and to see some in there. Well, there used to be. Yes, the, I agree uh, with here, you. Here I go again, starting to walk down the track of you know the good old days, but. The truth is that uh, the the standard of political debate today is about 50% or less than what it was even, say, 15 years ago. There's always been a gladiatorial element. Paul Keating has maintained that that he thinks the mood changed after the dismissal in 75, uh, that the extent of the friendships across the party lines behind the Speaker's chair and, and in the privacy of various officers and so on there was quite a bit of that went on. There were friendships across the aisle and there was certainly a capacity to speak across the aisle. I think a lot of that has gone and that is very unfortunate. I also think that the polarisation of our politics is symptomatic of a wider polarisation in the whole of our society and that really, really, really worries me because I think think we're losing the capacity and we certainly risk losing the capacity to be able to talk to each other Uh, across our differences, Uh, whether it's over the back fence, in the shop, in the pub, or in the parliament. 
and uh, and in the media. I think the media itself is polarised like I can't remember it being polarised at any other time in my life. I think people are choosing now to, to absorb uh, the media that fits their views of the world. People who once upon a time might have read across uh, the media that you might identify as right and left and in the middle uh, or various, you know, various places in between. People are now choosing, it, it's, you know, they're calling it the echo chamber. People are now choosing to learn their news, get their news from sources that reflect their worldview. And, you know, the, the, the social, platform, social platforms like Facebook, they exacerbate that. They absolutely exacerbate that. Uh, you know, some, some bloody robot or some logarithmic, algorithmic process is determining what I'm interested in and sending me stuff. Uh, and that's getting seriously creepy. But that polarisation really does worry me, really worries me, because you look at what's happening, and, and if, particularly if you couple it with, with what's happened on the internet and social media, and America is the kind of leading edge of this, and the sort of bombardment of, of fake news and, and attempts to manipulate us is crowding out and delegitimising the traditional news gathering and news gathering process that we might have once been able to rely on with greater confidence than we can now. So I just, you put all of those, so, so that kind of process, I think, is just going to drive us into more polarisation. And I think, mm. I think it is driving us further and further away from the democracy we have known and come to take for granted. Oh, I think it's definitely take it for granted and you could argue that it starts in schools and I know everyone says every, it's like honestly if you had to teach a, a kid everything they need to know in the whole universe, it's all got to go back to schools and what more do they have to do in there? And, and, and home, and the home, don't forget And the, the home. home. But, gee, that's not happening either. I mean, you know, you know, I'll sound like an old woman from the past now but, you know, my mum would buy the National Times, the Nation Review, the Australian, the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, we had interesting magazines. You know, it was having a bit of everything there and having someone That's talk exactly about right. it, you know. and, and That is uh, exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, a bit of everything. And mum would, her thing was that she really wanted to compare and she was looking at writing styles. I mean, she was a, a language teacher at secondary and then tertiary. But there's a girl who, who went to school uh, who loved French who had a teacher that actually said to her parents, this one should go to university, and they were like, no. Nah. That's not going to happen. Yeah. She yeah. somehow got there and was interested in how the place is run. But really a lot of a lot of kids would not have that and certainly not papers, papers where they're on the floor and you can read them every day. We're all on our own different devices, l- maybe looking at stuff, but I'm always astounded how people who I think are switched on and I'll say, oh, the Women's March, you know, did you go to that? What women's march? Mm. So yeah. people are still, even though all that information is there, they're not engaging with it because they don't think it concerns them. And yeah. m- my way to fight against that polarisation is to really be that one that when yeah. she gets her coffee or is at a barbecue, after the niceties of five minutes, and you know you and I get approached by random civilians all the time, mm. I'm mm. in. I'm like, what are yeah. you talking? What do you get? And I don't care now. I go straight into the conversation. And go literally. What do you? Who are you thinking of voting for? Or what? To, and I and I try and take the heat out of it. I'm not trying to have a go. I'm yeah. trying to genuinely go. And half the time, when you just explain a couple of things or maybe offer something else, they genuinely seem enlightened by something they didn't know. 
And that's because mm. you're having that one-to-one conversation with them and it might just sit in there for a little minute and it might do But it's that one-to-one conversation with people sometimes and we don't even know how to have conversations without heat, let alone what we see in Parliament. That's, so it's not modelled. That's what I mean about, about losing the skill and the capacity to be able to talk to each other civilly across a divide. I'm becoming engaged um, on behalf of the ABC alumni in a process of trying to promote the ABC as a serious and important issue uh, in this next election campaign uh, because the ABC as a, as a public institution, which to me is so fundamental, uh, has played such a fundamental and, and important role in helping develop and, and sustain a cohesive fabric across our society and this kind of seriously trusted institution still in an age where there is no trust for anything. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm interested when I get some small insights into this sort of this independence movement that's taking place and the idea of people having com- community discussions that aren't, that they're round tables, they're not even necessarily for big groups of people. I mean, the idea of community, of, of uh, I'll say small talk, relatively speaking, Given that politicians and their apparatchiks turned their backs on the town hall meeting in the 70s, and I saw it happen, I can tell you the last election when any political leader in an election campaign bothered to go to big public um, town hall meetings was Gough's last campaign in 77 against Fraser. So that's how long it's been since, but now, you know, the kind of the so-called town hall meeting is coming back. Yes, yes. And that's not a bad development, provided... It's not just part of some bullshit stitch-up marketing process to create an illusion of something that's not real. And it seems to me that this independence movement is genuinely looking to the grassroots as a way of allowing its message and and the things that worry it, that worry the, those people who are involved in it about the kinds of things we're talking about. You know, they, they want to actually engage voters and if there's one thing I hope I'm going to be able to say again and again, uh, wherever I go between now and the election, is make your vote count. Not telling people how they should vote, but just saying, make your vote count. Think about the issues that are important to you, and I hope that they see the ABC as one of them. Think about the issues that are genuinely important to you, not who's, gonna, not who's promising to give you an extra five bucks in your pocket or something. Those things are passing. Proper funding of various policy areas is important, of course, but isolate the key issues that are important to you, whether it's climate change, whether it is the ABC, whether it is growing corruption in the political process, whether it is uh, lies, whatever. The idea that people, I believe for this election, people should be challenged and feel challenged and actually take, become interested in the challenge to really think in some instances, for the first time in their lives, what is really important to me in this campaign and how can I make my vote count? I've always seen the election as an exam. You know, you, when you go into an exam and you've studied, you feel good because you, you, you kind of know what you're going to be saying. You can mm. feel good about the result. The amount of times I've stood in a line at a school waiting to vote and people are still deciding in that line. Yeah. They're still deciding in the line. And so there's something in them that goes, I won't do the homework I need to do about it. And 
I, I mean, I, I, and, and you can that you might see someone with a friend and go, well, who, who are you voting for? And it's astounding to me because I just think you can't be thinking about this right now. And I think certainly this grassroots level of, of independence is is more about that. I I I hosted the um, independent candidate for Hume Penny Ackery's launch. And we were in a basketball court because it was raining. We had an outdoor and indoor idea, but we went indoors in the end. And 350. I hope you, I hope you didn't have a tin roof. No, we were lucky. We were very lucky. I was really worried about the acoustics as well. Um, 350 people turned up um, as, you know, as the MC. I warmed up the crowd and chatted to people beforehand. And it was really, it was quite stunning, Kerry, to see people wanting more information eyes wide open for clarity, for something to be to believe in, something to be a bit hopeful about, especially after the last couple of years. Others who were uh, nervous to be there, a little bit nervous, not sure why they were nervous, sort of trying to... Possibly feeling a little bit exposed. Ab- absolutely exposed. One of the things that I think has happened, I mean, the, the, I've thought a lot about this, uh, the impact of, of, uh, of technological change, the, the impact of the digital age as it is now, and it's been a long, it hasn't been that long a time coming really, post-war, post-war, and it really only started to take off in the 70s. And the thing about the, thing about the digital revolution is that it's a little bit like measuring a tidal, uh, uh, like measuring an earthquake. Uh, it, there is a seismic shift going on. There, 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 there is an exponential kind of pace as you get further and further into that revolution. And we, we, we can, I, I don't care how much thought we put into what's going to happen next and then what happens after that and then what happens after that. Try by all means, but don't get too bloody caught in it because, because you'll just end up uh, being blindsided every time. I, I think that the pace of change, when you look at not just the pace of change, but the breadth and the range of change is unprecedented in human history. Including, I think, the um, the original industrial revolution, uh, and and our capacity to try and stay pace, we're just left behind at every step of the way. Mm. When we first when we first saw the internet coming, the very first rosebuds of the internet, and people started to speculate about where it would head. Nobody anticipated Facebook. Nobody anticipated Google. Nobody anticipated any of these things. And uh, uh, you know, let alone quantum physics and all the rest of it. So, and no one so contemplated doing putting some rules around it, some regulations around. They're only doing it now. When at the time, you're just thinking, like even even on a level, for example, my agent for years was just worried about what do I get them to pay my actors for doing a film or television. All of a sudden, yeah. she was having to go into meetings to 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 figure out. What will I now pay my actors? What am I asking for if the stuff goes online? If it's on the internet, what's that worth? What's happening there? The stuff just keeps moving yeah. around. If you're not going to put a rule around it or a regulation around it, um, yeah. it's like we let, we let it all go to shit first and then go, oh, right, people are really getting hurt by this. How do we bring it all back? Mm. I mean, I, uh, look, uh, uh, there are so many things that feed into this. I, I've just been reading a terrific article a guest essay in the New York Times, uh, and it's headed, for those who want to Google it, You Are the Object of a Secret Extraction Operation. And it's by uh, Professor Emeritus at Harvard Business School, uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff, and the author of a, of a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, and that's what it's about. 
And, and it says that Facebook is not just any corporation. It reached a trillion-dollar status in a single decade by applying the logic of what I call surveillance capitalism, an economic system built on the secret extraction and manipulation of human data. Uh, and it says, the world's liberal democracies now confront a tragedy of the quote-unquote uncommons. Information spaces that people assume to be public are strictly ruled by private commercial interests for maximum profit. The internet is a self-regulating market has been revealed as a failed experiment. Surveillance regulating market has been revealed, as as I said, failed experiment. Surveillance capitalism leaves a trail of social wreckage in its wake and it goes on. Um, You know, this stuff is profound. The impact of it and where it's going to go, profound. And, And most of us are sitting in our lounge rooms with the bloody blinds drawn or the curtains drawn and we're cringing. We don't, we don't just, you know, we, we don't just worry about the future for our kids. We're worried about our own futures. Mm. You know, a 30-something person who has been trained for one thing, having to contemplate how they retrain and then retrain again and then retrain again. And then they think, how on earth do I prepare my children for this? What's going to be the story for my grandchildren? Mm. These things are, are, are and, and, you know, it is no mistake that we are in an age riddled with anxiety riddled with anxiety. It's the, it's the unseen or barely seen pandemic alongside the highly visible pandemic that we've been through in the last two years and in many ways reaping a far greater, more tragic outcome because we are talking about, we are talking about the future of many of our, of our kids, many of the youngest people in our society, their future is being ruined for them as they grow towards even their teenage years. There are so many potential threats. And I, I don't want to be alarmist. I hate being alarmist. I, no point in being alarmist. But be, and, and, and so people say, well, how am I supposed to react to that? Mm. I don't know. That's, you see, it's too big for government. And at the same time, the quality of government is in decline in liberal Western democracies. We're seeing the growth of illiberal democracies through Europe, we're looking at we're looking at the great mess that American society has become, and we have over the last twenty or thirty years increasingly seen America as what we want to be. Well, good luck well, with that. Yeah, we're pay- we're already paying a price for it. Yeah, I've never understood that at all. Um, there is also another possibility, uh, and the other possibility is uh, to be uh, not hopeful because I think that's a a useless word often, but there's another possibility which is to have a kind of a vision for things that we could achieve, the things that we could change. So whether it is in the renewables uh, uh, kind of argument, uh, climate um, argument, that uh, a renewables could make a strong economy, that, you know, Australia could lead in all these ways, you know, if we could find a way, I don't know, to make universities free again and offer the opportunity for everybody to go and be in a situation where they meet different people and do classes where you have to apply some kind of constructive criticism, call it critical thinking, and everyone hates the word critical thinking now. But this idea that we could also start getting excited about that kind of place to live where we have to accept change and things will have to move and we start to become a country that is moving forward in an exciting way rather than always, even though we have to, be worried about the things that aren't working. And that's where our leadership can come from in terms of be it state or federal or, you know, performers or whoever it might be that sort of 
has those visions and knows a bit more than us, you know, don't be afraid of being with someone that knows more than you because that's how you learn, right? Yeah. Look, uh, I, I think I think there is, um, I mean, the, the single biggest source of hope for me in the future is the extraordinary range of uh, great young people coming through in through various public forums, uh, wonderfully articulate, passionate, clear-sighted, uh, demanding a better way, demanding demanding, demanding. better actions, uh, demanding action on climate change because they're saying you're robbing us of our future, how dare you? Um, but at the moment it's still fractured, you know, there's no sort of form to it that I can see, uh, which is why I find that that independence movement so interesting because it does seem to have developed as a grassroots thing. There's no hand from the top that has arranged all this. And if uh, and the longer I think that the mainstream parties choose to ignore the challenge that's being laid out to them there, the more they're going to uh, be affected by it. Because ultimately, if this continues the way it is, if mainstream parties do not improve their act, do not reform from the middle and think seriously about getting back on the track that they once were on as responsive parties to their constituencies, uh, then you're going to see hung parliaments and and multi-party governments uh, as as much more commonplace than they have ever been in this country. And we already saw with Julia Gillard uh, that although you had, you had and, and more power to her for her capacity to actually bring those people together, she had independence from both sides of the political divide, broadly speaking, functioning very efficiently with her minority government to keep pushing legislation through the parliament uh, at record levels, really, including some quite substantial, significant legislation. Kerry, so- isn't that the job of a Prime Minister, to be someone who can, and I'm not saying this disparagingly about anyone, but I'm just saying surely the job, or you would want someone in that position that goes, okay, I see your point of view, I see your point of view, we've got to bring it together. Why do you think this? What's going on? No, I'm not going to. That's the skill, right? I've got skills in what I can do. I'm certainly going to overshoot what I can do. But those kind of skills, that's what you need. You need someone who can do that. And they're out there. They're out there. But somehow we're not inviting them into the fold. And it's so interesting to me that this grassroots level of people all over the country somehow seem to be choosing, in the main, women as their candidates. That, that is a, a fascinating part of the equation, I have to say, and impressive women often. Grassroots movements seem to be choosing women as their candidates, even though there's been men in the mix, and yet apparently there's no place for women uh, federally on the Hill when it's done in the, in the other system. So, again, it's showing that people, it's not that people don't trust women. They absolutely do. They're choosing them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, this, is, uh, you, you, this is the same struggle that you've seen in the corporate world as well. Uh, and funnily enough, in trade unions, I think I think trade unions were ahead of the game in that regard because there have been some very strong female trade union leaders going back uh, over a couple of decades. Uh, yeah, that's just, that's that's still catching up. And, and even though there has been a significant increase in the numbers of women in the parliament, that very revealing series of Annabelle Crabs just shows how long it's taking uh, any number of men to actually catch up with what the wider public has already appreciated, and that is that women have a huge and at least equal uh, contribution to make 
uh, and and the whole process will only improve as a result of it. You always hear people say, I wish we had a Jacinda. And you go, I say she has a job already. We, there, there are plenty of Jacindas around. You just have to make them get in there. And it seems like the independent way is allowing women to step up. You know, uh, women who've already had careers and are now in the third act of something that they want to do in their life. And sure. um and it just, I mean, so eloquent, you know, Zali Stegel and Helen Haynes, so eloquent in how they speak and get their ideas across that I feel sane when I listen to them. I go, I understand what you're saying. You're being very clear. You're being very direct. You're not mucking around. Yeah, you're not hiding yeah. anything. Yeah. I mean, look, to, just so that we don't get too carried away with, with, with what we're hoping is against the realities. I mean, the truth is if you're an independent and you're settling on three or four or five key issues, uh, that you're going to say these are my, you know, stand against the tide on no matter what and I'm going to represent you on these issues more than any other but I'll also be very sensible in what else comes along. Unlike the major parties, they don't have to have a whole platform and that does make their job somewhat easier. But nonetheless, the role that they potentially can play is of really serious import given the standards of politics generally today and the need for the mainstream parties to be forced to rethink, reassess and reform in a way that is much more responsive to the broader public and going back to politics more as a vacation than as just another career. And that oh, is a part of what's gone wrong. Yeah. That is a part of what's gone wrong. But don't you, know, you think that but don't you think the way they express themselves too, if you think of Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor as well, I mean, it's just a different way of expressing yourself as well. It's it's it, they always take the heat out of the discussion and the bias and are just saying, well, this is how it is. And I just don't see why we can't do that more. And I hope voters start to see that's a way of doing things that's different, that seems to be yielding more. It's an approach. If you know that old, you can't be what you can't see. And I know it's an old cliche yeah. term, but it's true. If you can't see that someone can actually cut through with just, you know, calm discussion, it's sort of saying, well, I know, I know you might not have as much power and I might still be a Labor or a Liberal voter, but why can't we have more of those in our group? And there are some, I'm not saying there are not. Don't, don't forget that Tony Windsor was in a mainstream party. He was National Party. Huh? Yeah. He was in the yeah. State Parliament as a National Party representative. So he had come out of the mainstream. He had come out of conventional politics. And I think any smart individual who's got any understanding of politics, if you're going to be an independent, you've got to be really clear about what it is that your potential constituency is going to find attractive because if you can't work it out, goodbye. Goodbye to your chances of ever being elected. Some of them are populists. In fact, I think I'm just guessing here, talking off the top of my head, but I think over the course of time, if you went back and counted them all and looked at them, you'd probably find that most of them were populist, most of the successful ones, like a like a Bob Catter. In this day and age, if you're going to be a successful independent, other than like a like a rogue, uh, self-interested Clive Palmer, then you've got to be offering an alternative around issues of trust and honesty mm. and responsiveness to the public. Those are the things that I imagine... Uh, are the key resonators. And so you've got to be prepared to practice what you preach or you'll be very quickly exposed because before you walk through the front door of Parliament House for the first time, you've made a whole shitload of enemies. And that's a technical <laughs> term, everybody, shitload. That'll be in the Macquarie Dictionary, shitload. Final question to you is um, I've always been so, sort of, um, I don't quite understand why. So I'm half French, half Australian. And when I go to France, 
People talk about politics quite naturally, easily, openly. It can be part of any conversation. And yes, sometimes it'll get a fiery and other times it just will not. People will uh, protest for things, march for things, shut down for things, go on strike for things and it all moves along. And in Australia, I honestly feel that Australians almost need permission to speak. They're like, they, they, firstly, they'll shut it down. And, and I'm talking about, you know, yes, there's a group, of, you know, who might have been to uni like us and all the rest of it, who of course have the tools to be able to, but I'm talking about, you know, any people you meet to sort of say, you are allowed to talk about this and you are allowed to express yourself around it and find out more about it. And I guess that's the sort of feeling I got from that basketball court of people going, oh, I can turn up. I, I can be here. And it doesn't have to be under the bright lights of a QA and a in an audience, which is terrifying. It can be here and I can not say anything, but I can sort of, I'm allowed to listen to it and maybe dare to dream or dare to believe or dare to question. Why are Australians like that? Well, look, I, I think truly you'd need to unpack this. Uh, if you've got another hour, we could have a crack at it and I'd have to give it some really <laughs> serious thought beforehand. Australians have always had a capacity to, 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 there's been no shortage of anger in politics, 1917, or maybe even 16, the, the conscription debates, no holds barred there uh, in the middle of the First World War. Uh, Australia has thrown up some significant surprises in its politics. I do think that one thing that is so fundamentally precious to our system, which really works and is a shining example to the rest of the world, is the fact that our voting is compulsory. Even if people aren't prepared to to pursue an interest in politics, um, the, the Constitution is saying that that the founding fathers. I hope I hope I'm reflecting the genuine view of the founding fathers, that they understood how fundamentally important the right to vote was. That they were actually they took the view that it should be, you know, shut your ears, anti-vaxxers, that uh, and, and you know, please don't mandate my life despite the fact that it's constantly mandated in all kinds of ways, many of them legitimate, that it was such a, a crucial key to a, to a healthy democracy as that, they were, that they've decreed that, the voting, that, that voting should be compulsory. Now, I'm not a walking oracle on the Constitution, so I'm assuming that that was there from the outset. It might have been presented some years later. One of the great things that's happened to differentiate Australian democracy from many others uh, and it's and it's why partly it partly explains America's problem. It partly explains Britain's problem. People might grumble as they go to the polls, but for one brief moment, at least, they're forced to think about it. Um, and some more so. It does create conversations. Uh, if you're right that people are kind of timid about expressing their own views, and and you, you're probably more right now than you might have been in the past, simply because of this sense of almost isolationism and and polarisation. People are scared because they might pick a fight because there are so many angry people out there on this stuff, which is why I think it is a, a, a kind of a nice example of how things can be done, mm. that people can decide to sit down in a civil environment and speak to each other and open their minds up to the views of others and feel confident enough to express their own views and, and start to develop their own views with others. Mm. Well, on that note... Kerry O'Brien, what a beautiful way to finish. What a beautiful way to finish. What's what's the rest of the day hold for you? Kerry, are you going to do something? Uh, Is it raining where you are because it's pouring it's here? Been, it's been raining. <gasps> uh, 
constantly. But I came to a, a view uh, very early in our time up here. We came up to the north coast of New South Wales um, when I left 7.30 and my wife walked away from her job at, at uh, the Herald. I learnt very early on not to complain about the rain because you you appreciate it when it's there. And and often it's there it's here in abundance. <laughs> and 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 the Byron Bay view of a dry season is where you have four months without rain. Mm. Um but um uh no, it's wonderful. Wonderful part of the world and the only what what it reminds you of though is uh is that there are now so many manifestations of the impacts of climate change already on us uh, that, again, nothing is predictable anymore. Mm. The only thing I think that is predictable, as is being demonstrated season after season after season, is that that whatever weather patterns we've had in the past, we're going to have in spades and we're going to have with greater intensity and at greater cost. Mm. Sorry. On that 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 downer of a note, thanks, Kerry. Jesus Christ. What did they say? Never ask a question you don't know the answer to. What up, what up? Jay-Z asks who cares. It's your boy, Jay-Z. Make some noise. Not bad, Jay-Z. Julia Zemiro. This is Julia Zemiro asks who cares. Thank you, Kerry O'Brien. Isn't it great to hear Kerry laugh? On to Zara Seidler. Uh, what an impressive uh, human being she is. In her 20s, she set up with Sam Kozlowski, The Daily Oz, uh, News for Millennials. And it's Australia's leading social first news organisation. They're on a mission to arm millennials with the tools they need to begin their own deep dive into the news. Their news recaps and explainers are read by over 100,000 Australians daily, 85% of whom are under 34. They've also got a daily podcast you can check out. And it was just wonderful to hear her talk about how they got into this and why they thought it was necessary. And I started by asking her about how she got into it in the first place. And it went via possibly wanting to become a teacher, going to Washington to work in politics, and finally getting a gig with Karen Phelps. Straight out of school, I thought I wanted to do teaching. I was dissuaded by those around me perhaps because of my temperament more than anything. Do tell. I think that, I think that uh, people rightly identified that I'm very opinionated. I am quite impatient at times and perhaps needed to go out there and figure out a bit more about the world and then go back to teaching a little later. So okay. I thought I was going to do my undergrad and then go back and do a master's of education. And I mean, Still could happen, but right now it doesn't look very likely. So I did an international and global studies degree straight out of uni. And it's a fairly open degree where you can kind of make your own way and figure out what you want to do. Ended up at Georgetown for an exchange and got there the weekend that Donald Trump was inaugurated. Now that's in Washington for people. I mean, that's the heartbeat, isn't it? That's a heartbeat of politics. It is. Yeah. You nailed that. It was quite an awakening. I think that I had thought I was political and then I went over there and and got a whole new sense of what being political really is. My understanding of being political was caring about things. And when I went there, it was a full embodiment. It was a, a head to toe, you know, you have thrown your life into this. It is affecting your day to day in a way that I mean, Trump really brought a new sense to to 
indeed during one's everyday life. Um, but I will acknowledge that I had had a privileged upbringing where I chose issues that mattered to me and I cared deeply about those, but day to day wasn't really affected by decision-making. Um, and so I, I got to see that up close when I went to DC and I also did a fellowship with, um, Hillary Clinton's campaign director, who was obviously quite jaded post-election. And so it was this just really, yeah, it was really quite life-changing. I mean, I was extremely young, so it changed. How come it didn't turn you off though? I just honestly, and it sounds so contrived, the passion that people had, the fact that this guy was still going into Georgetown and teaching a bunch of teenagers about politics after he'd lost the biggest election Mm. in history. I just, something, it it just appealed to me even more. And it Mm. made me angry, I think, Mm. more than anything, because the day after Trump's election, I had the Women's March and that was just on, on the complete other side of the spectrum. So both deeply political experiences, but my, you know, interaction with those was very different. So I came back just really excitable and I wrote myself a note. I actually found it recently that said that I didn't want to become complacent when I got back, Mm. that I I didn't want to just be one of those people that said they'd had an amazing experience, but then never channeled it into anything. Mm. Hilariously, I ended up coming back and working for Sky News. Um, but what a which, great experience too to be in the kind of the belly of the beast there and sort of go, mm, how's stuff done here and what sort of yeah. tactics is in this uh, world? I often find um, in in my role now I, I get a fair bit, not a fair bit, that's an exaggeration. I, I get some comments about my time at Sky News and people thinking that I am aligned with the Murdoch way of thinking. Um, and to that I just respond that I was a young kid who needed a job and that it was an amazing foot in the door. And when the media market is owned, you know, two thirds owned by the same person, you you don't really have a whole lot of choice as a young person who's interested. So it was a really great experience. And um, my role there was to set up guests for their interviews Karen was one of those guests <gasps> and um, kind of just chewed her ear off a bit um, and then sent an email out into the world hoping that it would land and somehow got put in touch with someone who puts me in touch with someone and ended up working for Karen um, for a brief period, which was wonderful and, you know, reinvigorated my my love and passion for public policy and all the likes of that. Um, so it when, was great. When you came back from America, do you come back to Australia? And I often feel this, Australians are just so afraid to speak up. We're so afraid to have an opinion. We will not talk about politics. We won't arc up. We'll go, oh, settle down. I need to get excited about it. And you're like, if not when now, if not now, when? Yeah. And I'm getting excited by and uh, affected by, as you said, the, the the daily decisions that are made on our behalf, whether we like it or not. Did you come back to Australia and have your shoulders kind of drop and go, come on, everyone? I did. I definitely did. I think that uh, I was in a unique position because like you, I grew up in a family where it was kind of always the conversation. Like there was never a time that I remember we weren't talking about politics. When I noticed it most acutely was with my friends. It was that I would kind of speak at them Mm. and wouldn't be getting a whole lot back in terms of excitement around certain things. 
I would say though that if there was any time where people seemed to care, it was that time. Mm. It was because, and I think it has something to do with the way that American politics is based on this real value system that I don't think we've identified exists in Australia, despite the fact that it does. And so there it's this like sweeping ideology that's, you know, connected to these big systems of how you see the world Mm. and you either agree with Trump or you don't. And that's, Mm. you know, it's very two-dimensional. I found that to be quite a stark difference to how we see Australia and that people considered things to be on a lesser scale for some reason. Mm. I know we're obviously a lot smaller, but no decision affects us any more or less than it would being in a different country with a different leader. What an amazing experience to, you know, wasn't necessarily going to be interested in politics and you have this time in Washington, you come and work with Karen and to work with an independent at such close quarters and Mm. she achieved so much and was one of uh, one of those first lots of examples of how much an independent can actually achieve and now look what's going on i mean now there's look. just a sweeping <laughs> up. i mean zoe daniel has just i know i know stepped up it's, as goldstein it's, oh, it's very exciting and i mean you know th- there is some very experienced people out there stepping up as they mm. say because it's not easy too, this assumption that doing something like that, I'm sure you, you you experience it with Karen and her life, but it's, you know, you're also stepping into a world of extreme busyness and you'll never see your family again exactly. and, you know, all of that. But when that finished, did you think, right, I'm on to my next independent, I'm going to get into this, how can I get into, into the, this world? I went a different route. What attracted me so much to Karen was that I, I agreed with everything she was about. There was there was no part of it that I feel this with the party two party system is that you love some of it and then you hate, hate some, some of it, it. Oh. and you just have to take it. I never really liked that and never saw myself reflected in in that sort of style of politicking. So with no other independent that really appealed to me or had a job. I moved into government relations. But sometimes when I'm on Rock Quiz and I get my contestants up and I ask them what they do, they'll say something like government relations and I'll go, and what is it? What is that? A lovely euphemism. Because, you know, (laughs) it's like, you know, I'm in communications. Yeah, but what do you communicate? (laughs) So tell me in your own words, uh, what is government (laughs) relations? Government relations is, I don't know if this is a flattering picture of it, To me, it was using the connections that you had in the political system to affect change on behalf of a client. So ultimately it is lobbying. Mm. um, And my role during that time uh, was to specifically have those relationships with the independent politicians, so members of the crossbench. And that was fascinating because the thing with that is that you get across every policy in you could ever think of because you're not married or tied to one client with one policy area. You learn about health, about science, about tech, and, and it's sort of just this amazing deep dive into a whole lot of things. Um, and I really, I really enjoyed it. I think, think it uh, taught me a lot. I learned so much about communication and how to communicate a point effectively um, and concisely. And in a way, funnily enough, it's kind of the opposite way, but 
in a way that makes sense to a politician who needs to get across things really quickly. Yeah. And are you still catching up with friends and having great discussions about this great job you've got and they're still blanking and going, yeah, when you stop oh, talking, Zara, about this. Yeah, not, not a, single, a drink. Yeah. Yeah, no. And it why was, aren't they interested? I mean, you've you've probably had similar schooling, you're in a similar area. Are they but this is what always fascinates me. I'm not saying you're gonna be a hardcore mm. nut about politics, but you know, you're either in it or you're not. And I still can't quite, you know, if you stop someone in the street and say, who do you think controls your life? And they go, I do. And you go, well, no, not really. (laughs) You know, there is this umbilical cord to what's happening in Canberra and people Mm. choose to ignore that or or at Mm. their peril or go, ah, look, I'll just vote for the whoever I voted for last time. What is it for them? Are they just busy off with uni? Do they genuinely don't see that it affects them? I think that both the media and the political class have uh, not, and I don't want to take agency away from the individual, but I think, and this is the problem that I've been trying to solve, that there has not been enough communication in the style and the way that is accessible to this generation that makes them realise that they care and why they need to care and what is at stake here. I think that um, there's a lot of assumed knowledge this is what the Daily Oz does. It makes it clearer. It kind of separates, you know, the complicated, not even the complicated stuff, it just sort of isolates those moments and those uh, stories and ideas that can actually make sense to, to someone. It's exactly it. And that assumed knowledge part and that component was the driving force. It was how do we provide context to the headlines that, people are reading every day because people turn off when they feel dumb. And I know that that people in my life have said that to me before. It's, well, I I don't contribute to conversations because I don't know enough and I don't want to come across as dumb or uninformed. And I completely understand that. I would feel the same way. Mm. And so what we're trying to do is really provide that backstory, that context to a, a headline or a concept or a political mechanism so that people feel empowered to then get into the discussion or vote a certain way because they know that there is a level of information that sits at the foundation of their knowledge. So you're working in government relations, um, yes. lobbying, and um, <laughs> and what? The, how do you meet Sam or how do you go on to this other? Uh, my timeframes are really murky. But I mean, they can be general for our people, yeah, Sarah. I'm not asking just, for dates. Yeah, <laughs> it was um, the sixth of no. So Sam started the Daily Oz a number of years ago, mm. and he he he'd taken the name on Instagram. He had the idea, didn't do anything about it, and then put it on either Instagram or LinkedIn. We can't agree. Um, saying I want to do this with someone. Is anyone interested? And I had like eight friends send it to me. They were like, Sarah, <gasps> yes. They know you so well. To. I know. It's as if my friends listen to me. Aww. and They um, just can't have the conversation. They, <laughs> yeah, no, they, no, my friends are absolutely wonderful. But I, I, yeah, I just remember being sent it and we are part of the same community, but had never met each other. And we went for coffee and we were like, oh my God, we're the same person <gasps> in two different bodies. Like this is insane. We had exactly the same ideas. We had, I mean, different upbringings, but the same values and belief system. And we have been best friends since that day. There's not been a day since then that we haven't spoken. Um, 
And I think that was four years ago. I love so, it. So um, from there grew the Daily Oz. And for a number of years, it was just a side hustle. There was nothing else to it. It mm. was, we will do this every day because we want our friends to have something to talk about on a date or we want to not have friends, which very much happens. And family members text me the morning of an election saying, who am I voting for? (gasps) So it was an attempt to address all of those issues with the one answer, which was let's give you accessible, digestible, quick news bites and not actually disrupt the way that you consume information. We're going to just put it in your way so that when you're going about your scrolling, you get a chunk of information and you're smarter than when you started. And how do you know it's working? You know, you're starting it off and like anything, it starts slowly and I knew it sort mm. of jumped and, and grew, but mm. how do you know that this side hustle is making a difference? Are people getting in touch with you? Are they saying, oh, I get this now and I'm getting interested? Like have you seen people go down new kind of, you know, wormholes of information mm. or? It's a good question. I think for the first little while it wasn't. Like, I don't think yeah. there was any indication that it was working or that it was successful, um, but we just kept doing it every day because we loved it and we didn't really have an audience. As it grew, it became very clear to us through just anecdotal evidence that people were starting to rely on it as their sole news source. That's a massive responsibility for people that are doing this before and after their very long day jobs. That was terrifying, but also we have always positioned ourselves. We say we're the entree to the news diet. So take us, you know, come with us Mm. and then off you go into the world and you can consume whatever else. And at least you, again, have that foundation. So we grew more, yeah, our audience grew and then COVID happened and then here we are. <laughs> How did COVID affect you? Everyone suddenly had a reason to care about politicians because in a way that I think, like we discussed earlier, politics hadn't touched people personally in their day-to-day life before, especially the more privileged among us. This affected every single person. So no matter who you were, no matter where you lived, no matter what you did. And so suddenly we had people who previously wouldn't have known the name of their premier or chief minister mm. texting up saying, what time is it on? Like, I need, I need an update. I need everything. And so we went from whatever we were doing before to doing just, we will translate these press conferences for you. And that was just clearly what people wanted. Yes, <laughs> um, yes. And we just continued to grow and grow. And we started hearing more about what our audience wanted. And that was a really gratifying thing to have that audience input and to have young people saying, I've heard this around. Can you just explain it for me? And so it continued to grow. There were a number of other events. um, And I've spoken about this before, but Black Lives Matter movement, the US presidential election, and COVID taken together all really just yeah, put a rocket ship under our, I don't even know what the word for that is. Put a rocket ship, whatever it did, it blew you to the moon. A thing. It It got it it going. Something. (laughs) Put a rocket up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that. Um, And yeah, here we are. It's, uh, it's hard to find good things that came out of COVID, but one of them mm. is that, yeah, there's definitely, um, and the thing is too, it doesn't even have to be the word politicisation. It's actually just being involved in the civics engagement. around you. And engagement, yeah, with what's going on around you. 
The work is so great on Daily Oz. It's so accessible. It's so clear. It does. It's not dumbed down at all. It is it, the clarity of it is what I love so much. And and I know that people who, are, as I said before, it's not just twenty that twenty year old group that that listens and 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 reads. What shocks you as you're putting work together? Is there anything that you see in the way it's all put together or what's out there that shocks you about media? just how much assumed knowledge there is. And it's not even about the concept. It's about the historical happenings that kind of predate that event. I just. Mm. So how can you, so how can we change that? Like, you know, I I still think that, like, I think, I think, say, in terms of the arts, for instance, you know, we still have such a problem in this country uh, just legitimising it full stop. People love going to see shows, sure. Mm. But in terms of training, in terms of what needs to be done, in terms of the discipline involved and in terms of it being a full-time job if you're lucky uh, and it not being a side hustle and don't keep asking people to do stuff for free, mm-hmm. I sometimes think, well, the best way to make good audiences is at school you you give them the jargon and the vocabulary to read a play on stage to understand what that there's a stage manager to understand what film is to understand that there's layers of meaning and understanding to go to dance and go I'm not quite sure how to get into this but I'm feeling something I'm not sure what it is like for me it's art I don't know enough about it and I, I there's no point me going to a gallery unless I'm with a friend who just gets it right and and it's so different it's so good because you're there going yeah. oh my god you've got this whole <laughs> knowledge and you can share it with me oh hopefully I can share some rock music stuff with you later but um but it's it's a sense of going you make better audiences for something Mm. and not Mm. by necessarily uh, marking them on it maybe we could just do it because it's interesting and fun and makes you feel good to sing a song every day uh, that's cool with a whole group of people and go and we're not getting marked on that we just generally did that because it was enjoyable great I love this school you know (laughs) maybe we could do that with media unless you unless you take media studies at school that is something I have thought about for so long is, and I've actually texted some of my old school teachers to just see whether there would be an appetite because having media literacy Mm. at a school age, I mean, school leavers are at voting age and it's too late then. Mm. It is too late when we are trying to, I mean, it's not too late. It's never too late, but I think it is later than it should be when we at the Daily Oz are intercepting these people. I think it should be as early as possible. And it's a completely apolitical, mm-hmm. non-partisan. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I think in my head, I've always thought of a civics and a media course. And I've always thought of someone coming in. I mean, at school, we had all of these like study skills things that they just brought in external people to run. And they were like, cool, hip, like young kids. And you were like, oh, I like you. Like, maybe I'll listen to what you say. (laughs) And in my head, I think that way of doing it would be really useful and working with the teachers alongside them. Um, But actually having experts in the room to, to talk to the need for media literacy so that when these people go and finish school, they have at least that foundation of knowledge to then go out and seek out their own information. You cannot expect a school age student to know what they can't know. And I really see it as, as something that needs to happen. But yeah, the media literacy thing would, is ridiculous that we're not sort of harnessing it there. And then people are lost and absolutely feel stupid. And no wonder and they don't want to talk about it. Exactly. And and I think the big thing to point out is that 
no wonder, no wonder you mm. feel that way. And mm. that's not wrong. And you're, you haven't done anything wrong to feel that way. Mm. You've just been underserviced in this department mm. for lack of a better term. And mm. I think oftentimes there can be this condescending tone that is employed when talking to people who might not be involved in our, you know, civil society when it's, how can we actually engage them? Let's mm. not isolate them further. Let's try to bring them in. And how do we do that? There was a time when, um, I remember when Natasha stopped a spoiler joined parliament and we're a similar age. And I remember thinking, wow, I mean, and a lot of fuss was made about how young she was. Mm. And because she did it with the Democrats, um, maybe that was the only way that could happen. It could only happen through a slightly uh, uh, off-centre party. But um, but she was about the only one really. I mean, or maybe I paid attention because she was a woman, but, <laughs> you know, it's not. Uh, and what's interesting to me is that now all these independents that are stepping up, they're mostly women. Yeah. I mean, bar a couple. And it's interesting to me that all of a sudden, you know, apparently we're a country that doesn't like being run by a woman and yet grassroots are going, we absolutely choose you to be the person to to run. They know that it's electorally advantageous to have someone that will appeal to the electorate and it's just turning out to be women every time. Who knew? Who Who knew? knew? (laughs) Good grief. (laughs) Now, when when you got into the Daily Oz, surely part of the enjoyment too is that you have creative control. Oh, I mean, I actually, we had a job interview today with someone who we are looking at hiring and they asked about the bureaucracy of our organisation. And I was like, <laughs> what bureaucracy? <laughs> what red tape? There is none. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, we, and I think this was something that was really important during COVID. We don't have to wait on anyone. We don't have to get approval for anything. We don't have to fight upwards for anything. It is we do what we want. And I think that lends itself to listening a lot more to what uh, our audience wants too. And so we're really guided by what is happening in their lives, what they are interested in, what they want, you know, as a talking point before a date. And to have that freedom, I mean, it's just, I'm in my dream job and I'm 24. I can't quite imagine a world that is better than this. It's amazing. There's a lot of fuss made about how the young you and Sam are, but I kind of think, God, I mean, in your 20s, if you switched on, that's where you have a lot of energy. You've got a lot of... Um, I couldn't do this at any other point. I'm exhausted. You know what I mean? It's like you've got this amazing energy and it's like, I'm going to use it while I'm here, while I can. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a good idea. You, you also incorporate serious news story. I mean, you know, Sam puts it as the necessity of news. It's sort of mm. having that in there. You, you do hard news. You're not going to be doing, you know, f- f- fun stuff for fun. But you do in, intend, You do tend to include a good news story. Mm. Mm. And what was the idea behind that? That a lot of people said that they didn't read the news because it made them feel really shitty. Mm. And I understand that. It, it can be really shitty just not a good enough reason to turn off. And I also think that you can turn off if it doesn't affect you, which again goes to one's privilege. So um, I just wanted to eliminate that excuse altogether. Yeah. And like, yep, the news can be shitty. Here's a great story to end the day with. Um, And I'll tell you, finding the good news is the longest thing It is the longest task in a day by an absolute mile. It is so difficult 
to find a good news story every single day of the week. And that is horrible. I don't blame the people that say it's dark. It is dark, but um, we always find one. The funny thing is though, you, you, uh, uh, isn't a good news story what we want to try and turn our bad news stories into? Because, you know, if you see that something's being dress, addressed, if you see that climate change is being addressed or we're going to start looking at renewables in a fundamental way, you go, that is the good news story. You know, today having a Liberal cross the floor for, for something is, a, is the good news part of saying, you see, you can work together, we can have those conversations. But Again, there's a lot of assumed knowledge into why that could be seen as a good news story. Exactly, yeah. exactly. There's a lot of assumed knowledge and also, I mean, this goes against what I've said this whole time, but I've been speaking in a personal capacity and in a professional capacity, we we really value impartiality. And so we've taken a position on a couple of issues, things like climate change, not political, not a political game. It is our future. We care deeply about that. We will always put good news that is about action on climate change. Yeah, yeah. And that can be seen as political for a couple of people yeah. um, as they make it known to us every mm. single time it happens. But that's just the editorial position that we decided to take. Um, but yeah, what's good news to one person might not be good news to another person. And that's uh, when you have a quarter of a million people who are following your every move, that can get quite sticky very quickly. And do you feel a pressure though that one day you'll find yourself trying to please your audience more than saying, well, hang on, we started this because we're into the hard news and we're into Mm. um, the necessity of news. So no, we've got to to stick to what we initially said. I don't see it becoming an insurmountable problem. It's, it's like, they're always going to be there. We respect the opinions and the views of our audience. And as I said, we will take, you know, guidance from them, but we, this is our thing. They can go elsewhere if they don't like, honestly, yeah. Yeah. like some, someone said something about the way that we were reporting COVID numbers. And I was like, mate, just look for them yourself then. Like, it's just, you, you can seek out mm. the information without coming here. It's um, a free news service that no one is making you follow. But I mean, we have to do stuff that's unpopular all the time in, uh, the subject matter itself, like no one wants to read about taxation. Mm. And that doesn't mean we're not going to do it because you need to know about it. And so it's funny because an indication of success for us at a very superficial level is, you know, likes and comments, which is bizarre. And so there's a very quick read and we can gauge very, very quickly what the audience cares and doesn't care about. But to us, that doesn't ever affect the editorial process. It merely informs it. Um, I think with something like tax too, you know, people are horrified that say in a country like Denmark, you know, half of their salary goes into tax but they have paid parental leave for men and for women. You know, they they want for nothing. Their university is free because they believe that, you know, every kid, no matter where they come from, should be able to have the choice to go to uni if they want to go to uni. I mean, free university, I had free university, in, you know, at, at the age I am at but, um, I mean, that's a pipe dream now, you know, and it would be so, I mean, that would be a, a monumental thing to be able to say you can go to uni for a certain amount of time at least for free. It's really, I haven't thought about this before, but I'm thinking about it now when you say that. What I feel is missing right now, um, at least among the cohort that I speak to and hang out with, 
is there is no sense of aspiration in our politics. No one is aspiring uh, to reach, you know, the levels um, of, yeah, of what you just described of Mm. having free, you know, it's just like how do we, how do we change what we're in now, mm. make it better it, within the, you know, limitations of what we know? I, I don't get a sense that there's any, like, big thinking happening. Mm. Um, but there's no big thinking happening from the people anyway, in charge of, yeah, of who are older. Exactly, and yeah. it, it is probably that trickle-down effect. Yeah. It's that there's no big thinking at the top, so how can there be big thinking at the bottom? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. that's why we're just, really behind, yeah. Yeah, we really are. We, re- we really are. Oh, go back yeah. to Europe. Um, <laughs> now, uh, as we um, as we finish off, what's uh, do you do you, you and Sam see yourself doing the Daily Oz for another five years, ten years? You hand it over and then you do something else. I mean, I don't want to be the person that I um, referred to earlier, which is a person that thinks that they are among peers and speaking to peers when they're not. So when we are no longer the age of our audience, I think that that's a good indication that we're in the wrong place. (laughs) For now, it's really great that we feel like we're growing with them, that as they learn, we learn. And it's just this beautiful relationship. Unless someone forces me out, I'd like to stay. Um, We're just starting to grow our newsroom. We're recruiting lots of young journos and to have, you know, that just passion and excitement and people wanting to rock up to work every day. I'm not quite sure I'll find that anywhere else I know, at the moment at I least. know. You've kind of, you know, when you create your own job. I've peaked too early. I know. I know. It's going to be disappointment for me. <laughs> but at least you've seen disappointment too. You've seen a lot of hard work going mm. to a campaign like Karen's mm. and you see that there's incredible highs and incredible lows. And Absolutely. You know, and until you've, you kind of do need to experience that, I guess, to kind of go, oh, yeah, well, you know. And at Q&A, what was that like? How did you find <gasps> that show? I felt like it was studying for the HSC. Yes. I like tried to get across so much. And then they asked you one specific thing on something. You're like, wow, not quite where my mind was going to go with that one. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it it was my dream as a kid to be on Q&A. I just like, (gasps) uh, you know, um, I'm Jewish. I don't know why I said that so strangely, but for my bat mitzvah, when I was 12, my friends did a speech for me and in it, they like embodied different parts of my personality. And one of them was then pretending to be on Q and a, and they, I know it just kills me. And it happened. It, it happened. happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, lots to, lots to learn, lots to improve on, but it was just, I'm so lucky that that's all really. Yeah. I was very fortunate and um, I will really, yeah, remember that one. Zara, what a delight to talk to you. Uh, onwards and upwards, young lady. Thank you so much. Lovely to chat. Woman of the year. Woohoo! <laughs> Julia Zamiro asks, who cares? A big thank you to Kerry O'Brien and Zara Seidler for talking with me today. And a big thanks to Irrational Fear, our Patreon supporters, the Bertha Foundation, and to our post producer, Jacob Brown, who makes us sound great on equipment from the wonderful people at Road. Join me next month, which will be 2022, to find out who else cares. I promise I'll find people. We do care, and I do hope you'll get to have a break and a rest. All right. See you soon. Bye. Bye. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.